Hi, Nisio. Your scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes 1.12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Wisdom and folly are meaningless. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. 
For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Last week, or continued us in Ecclesiastes last week. And honestly, as much of a joke as it is to talk about uh, Amanda reading to us that life is meaningless and pointless, we really believed that beginning 2021, the new year, with a reminder of Ecclesiastes would be the best way to start this season of our lives. I think normally for us, New Year's feels like a hopeful time. Um, and this one did too in some ways. Like 2021 felt hopeful in some ways because we were like, oh yeah, we're going to overcome this like crazy season of 2020. But I think for most of us, it was also like just trying to get over the finish line of 2020. Something was exhausting and it was stressful and it was tiring. And so there was hopefulness about the new year, but not the same kind as previous years. And for me, part of that was just simply because what kind of resolutions can you make when so much of life feels uncertain? You like just don't know. Like We don't know what's coming next in this moment, and so how can you make resolutions about such uncertain things? This week, I uh, was able to get my first uh, dose of the vaccine, and then literally, this is, not, this is totally true, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm like moving into controlling my destiny and my future. And then the next day, I got a call that I might have been exposed to COVID, and so I had to go get a test. And I was like, what a weird moment. Like, I thought I was like getting a sense of certainty, and then immediately afterwards reminded, oh, you have no control of this, even if you're getting the vaccine. Right? What kind of resolutions can we make when so much is uncertain? And that is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us. Repeatedly, the writer uses this language of meaningless or chasing after the wind. And meaningless feels like it's talking about like no purpose, but the word directly translates to vapor. That life is fast. Life is quick. Life is like a vapor. And before you know it, it has dispersed. One translation, instead of using the word chasing after the wind, use the language of shepherding the wind, which I think is just such a beautiful metaphor to say life is a vapor and our lives are so often trying to shepherd that vapor into some kind of direction, into some kind of purpose, into some kind of point. And the writer is trying to remind us that life is beyond control. There's no level of inputs that can determine the outputs. It is vapor. It is shepherding the wind. All that is solid melts into air. You think you have a sense of this thing, and yet it is always just out of reach. And that can be very painful 
The writer is not trying, I think, in my mind, as I read the teacher, not trying to be cold about that reality. Instead, the the teacher knows that this is like a painful thing to own, that life can feel vapor-like and that life can feel like chasing the wind. The writer gets so frustrated about this dynamic that the teacher indicts God for the kind of pain this world has, writing, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Like life is a vapor and it is shepherding the wind and it is hard and it is painful and it is difficult to trust or to, to believe or to experience that kind of unraveling. Like we all know that from 2020, how difficult that unraveling can feel. And if you've lost someone or lost a job or had some kind of catastrophe occur, then you know even more at a deeper level how painful it can be for life to feel like vapor. And the writer is so frustrated, it says, this is God's fault. God made the world this way. It's God's fault for making this burden so heavy. So what does the teacher do with that? This burden and heaviness? Well, the teacher puts it to the test and conducts these, what you could say is our experiments in happiness. So the teacher tries to do is like, well, okay, I don't feel like I have much control over life, but I'm going to try to test that theory, test that hypothesis, run after it and experiment and try to discover what will bring us joy. I don't think most of us think about it that clinically, but I do think that many of us are doing the exact same thing. Experiments in joy. Trying to discover what is it that actually gives us a sense of happiness? What is it in life that gives us a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of significance, a sense of just like it's not totally futile. We run after jobs, we run after wisdom, we run after whatever, trying to find a sense of happiness. That's what the teacher is trying to do. And at first, the teacher tells us that they tried pleasure. If you look at Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1, the teacher writes, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved meaningless, a vapor. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I'm still testing this experiment. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. First test is pleasure and happiness. And I think for most of us, the pursuit of pleasure is the, is the kind of the happiness experiment that we can most quickly deconstruct. I think most people in this room would say that pleasure does not lead to long-term joy or happiness. There's been social experiments on this very topic. There's a very famous social scientist named Philip uh, Brickman who you, you probably have heard of the experiment from like a TED Talk or some kind of like podcast, but the experiment was just testing the happiness levels of lottery winners with accident victims. And I, I don't think I have to tell you the end of the experiment. I think you know the end of the experiment. Oh, accident victims were overwhelmingly more happy than lottery winners. Money may make misery better, but it just kind of upgrades it. Like, that's the, the end of that story. We know how that goes. Like, pleasure doesn't lead to long-term happiness. That same social scientist who did the lottery 
versus accident victims experiments coined the phrase hedonistic treadmill. To say like, oh, this is what it's like when we pursue pleasure as a means of joy. It feels like we are on a treadmill always running after something, never quite catching up to it. It feels like vapor, shepherding the wind, always out of reach. Teacher knows this. They know that it's not going to get them anywhere. It's like madness. It's pointless. So then the teacher tries something far trickier to deconstruct. Far harder, I think, especially for American Christians to deconstruct. Because the teacher tries work and vocation and accomplishment. And I think this is harder to deconstruct for American Christians because we have baptized work as a sacrament. Protestant work ethic built this country, right? We believe that work does bring a sense of happiness. Even Philip Brickman believed that the alternative to pleasure was obligation. But if you want real joy, the thing you actually need to do is obligate yourself to vocation, obligate yourself to hard work, that those kinds of commitments, that kind of sacrifice will produce in you joy. So that's what the teacher tries. The teacher runs after work and vocation. In verse 4, the teacher says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. The picture is that they were wildly successful. The teacher dedicates themselves to work and succeeds, accomplishes exactly what they set out to, is the top of the corporate ladder in every way possible. They accomplish amazing things, but then in verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and all that I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Tried work, I tried running after it, and I crushed it. I accomplished it to the best of my possible abilities. I crushed it harder than anyone has crushed it before me, and it was meaningless. And he gives us a clue as to why it felt meaningless, going on to say, I hated all the things that I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to some idiot after me. And they will have control. That's, I put that in there, if you didn't notice. It felt like people were like, giving me a little awkward laugh. They will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I poured my effort and skill. This too is vapor. It is meaningless. What the teacher is saying is that work feels like a very secure source of commitment, like a thing that will produce happiness and joy because you can get your hands in it and you can get your hands dirty doing it and you can accomplish things and you can see the fruit of your accomplishment. So it feels secure, but the truth is, oh, it is so fragile. It is so fragile. One minute you find a job that you, next, that you love and the next minute you're furloughed by a pandemic that you never imagined. It happened in my home. Last night I was talking to a friend who owns a bar that had opened uh, two years before COVID, had been wildly successful. And he was telling me about how they've adjusted to like, life in the middle of COVID-19. And he said this 
which I thought was kind of a, just a powerful quote. He's like, we believed this industry was indestructible because it had been. Financial crisis before, and they were like, we did fine. People actually like to drink when there's a financial crisis. Money's great. We were fine. People like to drink when money's great. They're like, at no moment were we not doing well. The only thing that could have ever destroyed our industry was, oh, this. This thing that no one could have predicted. He had a dream. He built a business. He loved that business. It's still going, but it was not as indestructible as he thought. It is far more fragile than we believe. But the teacher says, even if it goes perfectly, even if there is no pandemic or you ride out the pandemic perfectly or there's no crisis or you ride out the crisis perfectly, no matter what happens, it is still so fragile because someday you're going to die and you're going to have to leave it behind and you have no control over what comes next. This thing is more fragile than we think it is. That's actually the second part of the story of Philip Brickman who spends his whole life pursuing happiness at like an academic level, says that pleasure can't lead you to it, and instead work and commitments can. So Brickman rises in the ranks of academia, becomes the head of the social science department, has a family, buys a lake house, just crushes it. But then it unravels, because work is fragile. pressure that it puts on his relationship begins to unravel, his marriage begins to unravel, the job begins to unravel, performance begins to unravel. And the social scientist who dedicated himself to finding out what makes people happy ends his life with suicide. Because the thing that he believed would actually give you a sense of joy could not do it. This thing is fragile. It is hanging by a string. So the teacher is showing us that work, you think it's going to be the thing that gives you meaning, but it is fragile. It hangs by a string. And so because the teacher knows that and sees that, the teacher says, all right, I turned to wisdom. Verse 12 says, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can a king's successor do than what has already been done? This is also the problem with work. He's like, I'm not doing anything original. And so I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. So at this point, the teacher's kind of getting to this place. They're like, well, life is sort of meaningless, but at least I can be wise and discerning in the lack of meaning. So the teacher goes to school, gets a doctorate, studies under the best, reads the best, knows the current news, listens to the best podcasts, goes to the seminars, occupies themselves with paying attention. But then the teacher realizes in verse 14, I came to realize that the same fate overtakes the wise and the fool. What's the point of being wise if you're just going to die? What is the point? Is the teacher's conclusion. What is the point of being wiser than the fool if the same fate, if the same outcome just equalizes all of our efforts, all of our accomplishments, all of the work that we had putting into control and certainty of death just equalizes it? What was the point? And I, this one feels hard to me. 
working on my doctorate right now. And constantly feel like I'm a person who consumes news, who consumes resources, who consumes information, anxiously trying to stay up to date on what is happening, as though knowledge and wisdom can somehow give me certainty, control. But it doesn't. 2020 taught us that, and if nothing else teaches that, then death does, because no matter how much you know, everybody dies. Now, for the teacher and for us, this makes life heavy. It's the original kind of complaint that the teacher brings against God, that this is a heavy burden to feel, to carry. And if you go to verse 17, the teacher begins to unravel that heaviness even further. Like, I tried all of these things and none of them worked, so I hated life. My heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days is work, is grief and pain and work, and even at night, Their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Sounds a little emo. I'll give it to you. But I do think that the teacher has tried and found all of the experiments empty. Tried pleasure, tried work, tried wisdom, tried success, and found nothing. And there is a trauma to that kind of revelation. A dissonance and a resentment and a pain to that kind of revelation. For what he's worth, the very famous psychologist Sigmund Freud said that humans have a way of undermining their own pursuit of pleasure and desire because if we actually got what we wanted, the trauma would be too much to bear. Take it for his word, it's Freud. But I think there is something right there. Except the teacher got what they pursued and it was too much to bear. It was too much to run after something loaded with hope. Too much to run after something that has all your significance and hope placed within it only to get there and find out it's nothing. It's just a shepherding the wind. One of my favorite bands is uh, Arcade Fire. Um, it's because I'm an original hipster. <laughs> and they have this song that I just love called Creature Comforts that I think names this dynamic so powerfully. The song goes like this, God, make me famous if you can't just make it painless. It goes on and on, I don't know what I want. On and on, I don't know what I want. Creature comfort, make it painless. Bury me penniless and nameless. This is the part that I love. Born in a diamond mind, it's all around you, but you can't see it. Born in a diamond mind, it's all around, but you can't touch it. All these hopes, these promises, it's like you are in a diamond mind that you can't touch, that you can't access, that you can't get your hands on, that you can't actually do anything with. It is just vapor. And that is painful, and that is disruptive, and it causes dissonance in us, and it causes resentment in us. It's resentment building to try to chase something over and over and over again and find out that it is always just 
out of reach. That can lead to even a kind of trauma. And so what do we do? The teacher, as they press through this reality, actually gives us something. The teacher says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? This is a strange little moment. And a lot of people, I think, want to write this moment off as though it's just like the writer being more emo and sad boy. But I think that the writer is pressing through the heaviness of that trauma. And the more that you press through things that are painful, the more that you press through things that are difficult, and the more that you endure those things, if you ever endured a loss or suffered, you kind of know this, that as you press through that, there is a lightness on the other side of the heaviness. I think what the teacher is reminding us is that we are all going to die. So stay a minute. Have a drink and a meal. Maybe do something you like. Life is so much more fragile than we realize. It is beyond our control. It is vapor. It is shepherding the wind. It is hanging by a string. At any moment, at any moment, that string could snap and all of it could fall. So would you just stay a moment? Would you just pay attention? Life is short, so why worry so much about a job that you hate? Life is short. Life is fragile. The people that you love, you can lose, so why not stay a minute? Why not pay attention? Why not have another drink? eat a meal and do something that you kind of like because life is gone. The teacher, I think, is inviting us into perspective. This week I've been talking about the teacher a lot and I think one approach to the teacher is that they are very cynical, right? And cynical people tend to believe there's no purpose to anything. And I actually think the teacher is way darker than cynicism. Cynicism isn't dark enough for the teacher because the teacher is like, no, 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 it's darker, you're going to die. And that actually begins to reinstate the thing with a sense of meaning, reinstate it with the sense that it is gift. And that different perspective reorients how we see the world, how we engage the world around them. Instead of cynicism, we have a new perspective. And this is where that strange joy begins to emerge. And the freedom of losing control and gaining perspective. Of slowing down, of deconstructing the things that we think were going to bring us happiness and moving those aside to just be here for a minute. That's why the teacher says this too is from God. 
which is kind of interesting. The teacher recognizes this is from God because this is the same person who's indicting God for making life heavy. Somehow in the teacher's mind, God is the cause of both these things, that you have placed a burden on us that is too heavy, and yet you've also done this thing and called us to be present and to eat and to drink and to do something that we like. I think in a lot of ways that's true. Like that weird paradox is kind of true. Life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. And there's so many things in life that are stealing away our attention from the reality that life is a vapor. But that, I don't believe, is because God made it that way. I believe it's because God actually made it for us to pursue something different. There is a grain to the universe. Like a grain of wood. You know, you can cut with the grain or you can cut against the grain. God builds the universe in a certain way. He wires us in a certain way. We are created in the image of God to be reflections of God, to participate with God. That means that we were created for a kind of life with God. And yet so much of the story of the Bible is us literally running against the grain of the universe, running against God's intentions, running against the way that God has wired us, running against the way that we have been built. Instead of finding our sense of self in the community of love that is God, we find it in these other places. So that's why I say I think in some ways the teacher is right. Like this is kind of the way the world was meant to be, but we always run against the grain of God's intentions for the universe. So no wonder it feels like friction. No wonder it feels like pain. No wonder it can cause trauma like the inertia of a car crash when you run in the opposite direction. We were made for unity with God. We were not made for the race of pleasure or work or understanding. We were made to rest. We were made to rest in love with God and then to see and know this world as a gift. That's the world that we were built for, the life that we were built for, and yet we run against it so consistently. And the invitation of Ecclesiastes, the same invitation that Jesus offers us, it's the same invitation that the table offers us that we'll gather around in a moment. It's an invitation into the foolishness of God, the unconventional wisdom of God that would say, how about instead of running after this race, these things, would you rest in God? And that's where that strange joy begins to emerge. Right in the place that you were made for. So Missy, let's do this together. should have communion element somewhere near you. Someone handed it to you as you walked into the door or chased you down and handed you one. I saw it happen. The invitation at this table moment, it is to stay for a minute. 
to reorient our minds and our hearts, to enter into the love of God and to know, oh, that's where we belong. That's the life that we were made for. That's the way we were made. And everything else is just vapor. Meant to be a gift of something we make so much else. So, Missy, I'm going to pray. And then would you take those elements Would you let them reorient your mind and your heart? Would you know yourself as loved? And would you reclaim just today as a gift and not a race? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that the offer that you give to us is one of rest. You say that your burden is light and your yoke is easy. And that is a contrast to the ones that we actually put on ourselves, the heaviness that we always want to wear for our own sense of meaning and significance and pleasure in a world that was not built to work that way. God, today as you invite us to your table to know you, reorient our hearts and our minds. Give us that rest that enables us to stay with you for a minute. And as we stay with you, would you shape us into a kind of people who stay and who leave this place passing through the heaviness and into the lightness on the other side that is owed with you. So that we could be present and with the people of this world. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's say you're free to take communion. When you do, would you continue worshiping with us?